Welcome back to History List and our series New Connections, Episode 9. As both James Burke and Carl Sagan pointed out in their groundbreaking series, humans live in a world that changes, but according to patterns. Early humans were able to figure out those patterns, the seasons, the paths of the stars in the night sky, the monthly phases of the moon, and their own pattern of birth, life, and death. Yet some things were not patterns, but unpredictable, terrifying. Volcanoes, earthquakes, hurricanes. The nice thing about patterns of change, like the seasons, was that you could make predictions. Would there be a drought or a flood? But the only people who had access to this high-level prediction were the kings and their advisors of priests and astronomers, whether those divinators were in the Mayan temples or scratching out the first examples of the Chinese language on bones to make predictions about the future. And it's a safe bet that the kings wanted predictions about themselves. Would they pass the kingdom on to their son? Would they rule another 50 years? And of course, would they win the upcoming battle against their enemies? That is where we get the title for our episode. We shall be victorious to win the war. Our story begins in ancient Mesopotamia with the god of the underworld, Nergal. Nergal is one of the oldest deities in the world that we know of, going back at least 5,000 years to the very origins of the Mesopotamian civilization. He was not only the god of death, but also war and disease. He was worshipped and respected for some 2,500 years in the Middle East. His opposite, in some ways, was the sun god, Shamash, also known as Utu. While Nurgal was associated with sunsets, the life-giving sun was honored in the form of Shamash. In an odd twist, the two gods may have been fused in a later deity in a different part of the Mediterranean. One of Nurgal's names, given to him by the Akkadians, was Aplu, and this may be where the sun god Apollo got his name. Apollo is a more recent addition to the Greek pantheon, originating, it turns out, in the Middle East, in the lands that had revered Nergal and Shamash. Apollo was connected to the sun, healing, and, importantly, divination. His temple was established in Delphi, where his oracle handed down predictions for centuries. Because of his connection to predicting the future, Apollo was one of ancient Greece's most important gods. When the Romans adopted the Greek pantheon as their own, Apollo became a Roman deity. They took over the Mediterranean, but first had to conquer the Italian peninsula, defeating the Latins, Etruscans, and other groups like the Volsci. The Volsci had founded a city which the Romans called Cassinum, but which we call by the pre-Roman Volsci name today, Cassino. At the top of the mountain, there was a fort and a temple dedicated to Apollo. 
The site of this temple in central Italy, some 40 miles south of Rome, stood throughout the era of the Republic and the Empire. But as the empire was crumbling, the Europeans who had been, short time ago, Roman citizens, needed to band together for safety. And since they were all now Christians, and had been for over a century, this is when the medieval monasteries get their start. Benedict was born just a few years after the fall of Rome in 476 CE. When he was in his 30s, he wrote the famous Rule of Benedict, a list of guidelines for the monastic life, among which were stipulations stating that you should not wear or own fancy clothing, and that the monastery should only sleep one to a bed. The rule caught on, and Benedict ended up founding the oldest official order of monks, the Benedictines. Now all they needed was a site for their monastery, and they found one the site of the old temple to Apollo atop Monte Cassino, which is where the monastery still stands. Other monastic orders followed the formation of the Benedictines. Throughout the Middle Ages in Europe, the groups proliferated, setting up havens for monks and nuns throughout the continent. One Dominican convent in France ended up being a refuge in the early 1400s, for one of Europe's most celebrated writers of the time, Christine de Pizan. Spending her adult life in France, Christine de Pizan was a court favorite, and wrote all sorts of works for her wealthy patrons, so that, as a widow, she was able to survive by her pen alone. When the war heated up between France and England, the Hundred Years' War, she fled to the convent at Poissy and stopped writing. Fortunately for us, her great masterpiece had already been written, The City of Ladies. Penned in 1405, Pizan's work is the first great salvo in feminist writing in the West. She argues that a city run entirely by women would be a utopia, and carefully argues all the reasons as to why. It jump-started feminism, but unfortunately fell out of print a century later. The torch of Western feminism had to be relit by a new author, 400 years after Pizan's pioneering arguments, this time by an Englishwoman, Mary Wollstonecraft. In 1792, Wollstonecraft published A Vindication of the Rights of Woman, in the context not of convents and chivalry, but enlightenment and salons discussing human rights. Her work would directly influence the rise of the 19th century suffragists in Europe and America. As the 1800s opened, women in the West began demanding political rights, the right to vote, to travel through society unaccompanied by chaperones, and the right to a peaceful and safe home life. The last of these went hand-in-hand -hand with feminism in America by the late 1800s, a move for prohibition of alcohol as the vice that made home life unbearable for women and children legally bound to abusive drunkard husbands. The temperance movement, as it was called, is usually associated with an increase in women's rights, with colorful figures in American history like Carrie Nation, who took an axe to saloons. This growing support was taken up by the men who wrote and passed the laws making prohibition the law of America, 
by 1920, alcohol was forbidden and everyone stopped drinking ever again. Of course, that's not what happened. Some alcohol was manufactured illegally and distributed, while other sources were imported illegally from locations like Canada. Even with two-thirds of the states ratifying prohibition for the Constitution, it turned out that people a hundred years ago were just as susceptible to virtue signaling as we are today, saying they hated alcohol, but then going home to enjoy a discreet drink after casting their vote. Illegality, especially for an addictive substance, meant crime blossomed. The federal government in Washington had created a new organization in 1908 called the Bureau of Investigation, which in 1924 was led by a young man named J. Edgar Hoover, who used the force to prosecute the gangsters and bootleggers defying prohibition. The Bureau was officially linked to the Department of Prohibition in the 1930s. But with the re-legalization of alcohol, Hoover's Bureau became a new department, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, or better known as the FBI. Under Hoover, they developed a trademark slew of procedures, wiretapping telephones, men in disguises, covert agents, and all the rest. Well, these tactics of collecting information on Americans were adopted whole cloth by a different American organization, founded shortly after the FBI, known during World War II as the OSS, and after the war as the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency. The FBI would be in charge of domestic surveillance and the CIA foreign. But as the Cold War progressed, the CIA transitioned from trying to predict what countries would do to influencing those outcomes. Providing intelligence, weapons, training, and cash to those seen as sympathetic to America's interests. The path that brought us here began in the Middle East, with the Mesopotamian god Nergal, deity of death, and Shamash, the god of the sun. These seem to have combined into Aplu, or Apollo in the Mediterranean, a sun god connected to predictions, who had a temple built for him on Monte Cassino, which was in turn torn down to build the monastery for the Benedictines, who established the monastic order in Europe, that led to monasteries and convents throughout the continent, like the Dominican convent which sheltered Christine de Pizan, who wrote the first work of Western feminism, but which was forgotten, requiring Mary Wollstonecraft to revive the arguments at the dawn of the 19th century, when feminism, suffrage, and temperance worked together in America leading to prohibition, and the formation of the FBI to crack down on illegal alcohol an organization whose tactics were then adopted by the new international agency, the CIA, who realized they were better at implementing changes during the Cold War than trying to forecast them. In 1978, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. Within a year, the CIA was supporting the Afghan Mujahideen fighting the Soviets. Billions in aid went to them. But America wasn't the only supporter of the fighters. Arabic nations also pitched in, including the son of a wealthy Saudi family, recent college graduate Osama bin Laden. While bin Laden didn't get direct training or funds from the CIA, he saw in Afghanistan what the CIA was capable of. 
and what the rebels were able to do. For decades, bin Laden then schemed against America after his experience in Afghanistan. By 1988, he'd formed Al-Qaeda. They tried to blow up the World Trade Center in 1993. And in 2001, they tried again, this time under bin Laden's supervision, and succeeded. September 11th, 2001 was a turning point for America. Thousands died in the collapse of the World Trade Center towers and the attack on the Pentagon, as well as Flight 93, which was crashed in Pennsylvania by its passengers instead of hitting the White House. The nation turned its attention to the Middle East, launching its longest ever war in Afghanistan and the war in Iraq under the mantle of fighting terror. New government agencies like the Department of Homeland Security were created, and new laws like the Patriot Act. We started this episode in the Middle East with gods connected to death and prophecy. How predictable was 9-11? Should we have foreseen the attacks? Both sides of the new war on terror made their own predictions. Bin Laden released a letter that ended with the bold pronouncement, We shall be victorious. Of course, he was wrong. Ten years later, he had been assassinated by American forces. Yet, on the day of the attacks, President Bush also made bold proclamation. We stand together to win the war against terrorism. But terrorism cannot be defeated. It will, tragically, always be with us. As unpredictable a threat as a volcano, an earthquake, or a hurricane.